0: Hello and welcome to What's the Point, the podcast where we discuss the need for arts and humanities today. I'm your host Bryony Armstrong. We're living in a time when the arts and humanities are under threat and I know this firsthand, having studied both English and maths at university and now doing a PhD in English. Each week I'll be joined by a guest to talk about what arts and humanities do for the world. If you've ever wondered, What's the point of the arts and humanities? And this is the podcast for you. Hello everyone, we're back for another episode and I'm joined today by Dr. William Tullett, Associate Professor in Sensory History at Anglia Ruskin University, particularly researching the senses of smell and sound. William is currently part of a research team working on Ode Europa, a massive project bringing together historians, artificial intelligence experts, chemists and perfumers to bring historic smells back to life and create an archive of European smells from the 16th century to the early 20th century. So let's get into the episode. How did you come to choose a humanities subject?
1: Well, I ended up choosing study history uh, undergraduate and then uh, an MA in 18th century studies and then a PhD in history. Uh, because I'd always really, really been really, really interested in the past been really, really interested in, in history as a topic. I was one of those people who I was going to say dragged, but actually quite willingly went around lots of museums as a child. Um, my dad was very into kind of military history. So they, those museums often involve tanks. Um, but you know, I think that inspired a real interest in the past. Um, I I grew up initially in Oxfordshire, um, surrounded by lots of interesting historical stuff, um, and particularly lots of kind of very old villages, which I always found really fascinating. And I was also, you know, as a sixth former, very interested in politics as well. And I actually started my BA degree as a history and politics student. And then, because I thought that politics, I think, was possibly more vocational than history as a subject which proved out to be absolutely wrong Um, and I ended up dropping politics after the first year partly because I found it deadly dull but also because I discovered early modern cultural history and all these people using anthropological methods you know all this great stuff about witchcraft and mad 16th century uh, uh, peasants who became fascinated with Um, the idea that the universe was a cheese and angels were worms you know all of this fantastic writing uh, you know these amazing imaginary places that early modern people thought about and so I thought yeah that's for me that sounds great Um, and so kind of switched over to just doing history Um, but I also think more generally I've ended up keeping on studying the humanities because I think that humanities is political everything's political but the humanities have a kind of a critical political role to play, one that's often maligned in the current context by the government and the right-wing press. But, um, you know, I think it provides us a crucial critical lens, not just on the past, but on the present and also for our future as well.
0: I absolutely agree. I mean, I think about this all the time, that there's not really an incentive for a political ruling class to advocate for the study of humanities, as you say, because they have a critical role in questioning the society we live in um, so I think this is kind of part of what feeds into like the malignment of humanities especially in the current political climate today um, I have to say also I grew up with a very military history fan dad so <laughs> probably we ended up going to similar museums with tanks and things um, and I think it's quite a common story too um, for people to Choose the humanities, but maybe keep something in the wings that they think might possibly be more vocational. So for me, that was maths. Um, and as you say it, it actually turns out not really to be the case, and we find studying humanities that they are so applicable and relevant to real life. Um, so you research smell, and I came across your work when I listened to you give a talk that you really aptly titled Why Humanities Scholars Have to Wake Up and Smell the Coffee. Um, But it's not just humanities researchers, I think, that need to wake up and smell the coffee. So can you maybe tell us a bit about sort of the implications that smell has for everyone, um, especially in relation to maybe some of the big issues that we're facing today?
1: Yeah, so I think that one thing that's really pushed smell into people's consciousness in the very, very recent past is, of course, COVID-19, because it forced a lot of people to experience what life was like both with, out the sense of smell, but also with a heavily distorted sense of smell. So we talk a lot about anosmia, but a lot of people were were suffering from parosmia and other conditions as well um, as, their, as their COVID infection developed, which really meant that foul things smelled nice and fragrant things smelled horrible. Um, so I think, you know, one thing that that revealed to a lot of people is that smell is really crucial to our everyday well-being. Uh, you know, it's it's crucial to how we eat. It's crucial to how we relate to our environment. And for that reason, it's really important. And the environment really takes us onto a kind of second plank in why smell is so crucial, I think. And, and that's that it provides an important connecting point with our environment. One of the problems with our current engagement with smell, I would suggest, is that we tend to not attend to the smells around us we don't pay attention to them so the kind of often this we notice for example when we come back from holiday that our house or our flat or wherever we live shed dung heap has a particular smell and that's because we got used to it over time we didn't notice it before but when you re-enter a space after a long time you realize it has a distinct smell and so we often tend to only attend to smells when they're unusual and they're out of place but actually there's loads of amazing smells all around us that, you know, that are crucial to our everyday life. And lots of those are connected to nature. Smell provides us with a kind of wonderful way, both of connecting with the natural world, um, you know, whether that's kind of the smells of, of, of rivers or, or plants or, or even animals, but also it provides us a warning sign when things are going wrong in our, in our natural world um when smells are kind of out of place whether that's the smell of of pollution um you know the smell of kind of of, of rotting and death uh or, or whether that's even the fact that we can observe the issues that other species are facing with their sense of smell so the good example there is of course bees who for various reasons that are bound up with the use of pesticides and pollution are now very confused in their smelling often and can't find pollen uh because uh, their own sense of smell has been wrecked by pollution or because the plants that would normally guide them to that pollen have lost some of their odours because of the impact of pollution on the plants themselves. So I think smell's a really interesting way of engaging with our natural world and forces to pay, us to pay attention. And I think that paying attention is really crucial because the world that we currently live in is a kind of one that's heavily invested in economic growth um, and of projecting that growth into the future. Um, And smell isn't about growth. It's not about necessarily always projecting things into the future. It's often a tool for simply being present with the things around us, getting to know things around us, getting to understand things around us, rather than optimistically projecting numbers figures into a kind of horrible economic dystopian future um so attention smell makes us pay attention
0: yeah that's beautifully put it's interesting to me hearing you say that how smell it can really map as an analogy onto why humanities are important because it's not all about economic growth and sometimes it is about paying attention to what's going on and and being present um And you mentioned there's sort of bees in our environment. And I remember when I heard you talk speaking about the tool that smell can be in being something that can convince people of climate change being a problem. And funnily enough, actually, um, a couple of months later, I was in New Haven in Connecticut and I saw a sign up. um, Just someone had tacked to a lamppost. It was the New Haven climate movement had tacked it up there. And it was a poster encouraging people to switch from gas-powered lawn mowers to electric lawn mowers, and the slogan said, "Ah, the smell of fle- fresh-cut grass mixed with nitrogen oxides, hydrocarbons, carbon monoxide, and carbon dioxide." And it was just funny to see the things that you had said in the talk kind of play out, um, play out there in real life, and see how smell mm. does convince me- people if they're financially able to make certain choices that map onto the environment
1: yeah I think that's a really uh nice example and but I also think that smell should kind of caution us to to think critically uh e- even about kind of the switch for example from from different type one type of fuel to another in the in the case of electricity um one of the things I'm really struck with in the scholarship on smell is its awareness or increasing awareness of the way in which Often we're not getting rid of smells, but we're simply moving them around and fuel and power is a really nice example of that. So, for example, um, obviously burning, you know, burning coal, burning wood, burning gas, you know, petrol, those kinds of fuels, you're immediately getting a sense of how bad they smell, right? Because they're in your lawnmower or car or kitchen or whatever, So the the smell is having an immediate impact on you. The the difference with electricity is that that electricity has to be generated. It's often still generated by coal-fired power stations. And those coal-fired power stations are having a really negative polluting impact on the people that live near them. So what's happening is you're, you're moving the smell of pollution around. And that in itself is a kind of problem because the spaces and places to which that pollution is being moved... Um, are often, uh, you know, in poorer areas. They're in uh, areas of, of um, where large numbers of ethnic minorities live, or they're located in the global south, and that's a real problem and one that we should be aware of. And so, when I talk about how, you know, smell can be a useful tool in making policymakers aware of the impacts of pollution, climate change the way we generate our energy, really it's in a, in a twofold uh, way. Um, the first is to force people to confront the fact that so many of the production processes that we rely on every day, whether that's fuel, whether that's the making of things like paper and cardboard, which are really polluting, smelly industries that are particularly located in the south of the US. Um, these industries all have a really negative impact on people's smell, just not our, not just not white middle class noses because they're located far away from them. And the second way in which it's really important is because we become habituated to the smells that are around us. We've already kind of talked about how, you know, when you go on holiday, you come back from holiday, you realise your house has a smell that you didn't realise there was was before, and that's because before you were habituated to that odour. And the same applies to pollution. We, we kind of get used to the smell of, of car exhausts and stuff to a significant extent. We've learned to live with it. And... I think humanities scholars have a lot to learn from artists who have worked with smell. And a really good example of that is, is Thomas Pinsky's uh, Pollution Pods artwork, which is effectively five kind of domes that you can walk into and smell what the pollution of five different cities smells like. And what that does is it forces people to pay attention. It, it forces a confrontation with the smells of your environment that people might have got used to. And I think that's a really powerful tool.
0: Fascinating. It really is a wake up and smell the coffee moment, definitely. Um, And much like reading, I think, uh, talking about what humanities has to learn from art, reading literature, smelling something, it it does force you to have empathy, um, which is very powerful and something that I think is very necessary to study. Um, But so we've talked about smell in the present, um, things that we need to smell going on now. But let's talk a bit about smell in the past, because this is sort of your wheelhouse. Um, So you're currently creating a massive um, archive of smells from European history. Um, So why is it important that we preserve certain smells from our past?
1: Well, I think it's important to preserve the smells of the past because they have played a central role in people's daily experience and if you're a humanities scholar whether that's you know english literature or history or art history or any kind of discipline that's interested in the past i think one of the things that you're fundamentally interested in is what was it like for people in the past what did it feel like to be in the past you know what was the the daily experience of people who lived in past places and times and smell is a really potent way of thinking about that, but it's often something that's been ignored in history and in other humanities disciplines because those disciplines have been dominated by focused on texts uh, rather than, you know, for example, objects or uh, 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 other sources. Secondly, because it's been held that it's kind of difficult to archive smells like smells escape from bottles very easily they degrade over time why should we build an archive of actual smells so the evidence is lacking for the physical smells um but also uh, thirdly uh, because there's always been a hierarchy of what's most important and i and smells come at the, the bottom of that hierarchy whereas other subjects like politics have always been at the top um i had a discussion recently with a I'll say slightly hostile uh history um scholar um and their postdoc. And their postdoc said, Oh, smell, that's a very fashionable topic. And they worked on politics. And I said, Well, you know, politics has had a good three hundred years to be the kind of top dog. So I think it's probably time to try something new. <laughs> yeah. Um and what that means is that there's just so much to do. Smell is everywhere, in all of our sources. Um, it's kind of, in a way, easy pickings in that there's lots out there and, and lots of it hasn't been discovered or looked at. So it's also an interesting thing to do because it just hasn't been done. And yet it's central to our, our daily lives. And I think by engaging with the smells of the past, we, we bust some pretty pernicious myths about what the past smelt like that are really problematic. The key one being that the past smelled horrible, And that's part of a kind of narrative that we see in loads and loads of different cultural and and social contexts, whether that's kind of, you know, um, Monty Python with kind of peasants that are just mired in filth, uh, you know, or or whether that's the idea that um, less progressive or civilised societies are dirtier and therefore smell worse. Um, And actually, that's just simply not the case. People in the past were really attentive to the sense of smell, um, were really worried about smells and did their level best to try and either get rid of bad smells or cover them up or combat them with more fragrant smells. So I think kind of attacking that myth of, you know, a civilised place is a less smelly place. The past is less civilised, therefore the past smells is really important. Because it fits onto all kinds of contemporary issues as well. So I was reading a great piece the other day about Palestine. Uh, it was an ethnography looking at how people dealt with waste in the West Bank. Um, and one of the things that they talked about was how Palestinians are very keen to show that that they recognise the really bad sewage issues um and sanitary issues in the west bank because it's important for them to show to charities and non-governmental organizations that they don't want to live like this and that they're not kind of mired in their own filth and perfectly happy about it so there's a kind of politics to that that's still with us today
0: yeah, there's huge implications for it. That that reminds me actually, I was recently listening to another podcast I love, Sentimental Garbage. Um, I can't remember the name of the historian and I'll have to put it in the show notes so I can credit her properly. But she was talking about, again, smell in the past and this misconception that the past smelled terrible. And she said, well, a lot of the evidence that we have of, for example, sewage running through the streets is from people complaining about it to the council in written text. So... It's not that the past smell bad all the time, it's that people were trying to make it not smell bad when bad things occurred.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, and I think that's absolutely right. And one of the problems you have to deal with if you're a humanities scholar looking at smell in the past is the fact that people will often only talk about smells when there's a problem. And that means that inevitably you're going to get loads of bad smells. Uh, but once we kind of rootle around a bit and look at different sources... You know, you begin to discover that there are more fragrant smells out there um, and attempts to deal with those bad smells as well. And I think it's a nice example of how, you know, our focus on one type of source or or one type of data can really uh, distort our understanding of a problem. Um, and, And I think that in itself is a lesson that's very relevant for today. You know, you can you can make something look like a problem if you focus on a particular set of data um and uh, and indeed, the current government loves to do stuff like that so
0: mm, wow that's very true i hadn't thought about that um as as somebody who researches touch as well i definitely um also am coming into a research area that's sort of traditionally been seen lower on the sensory hierarchy compared to sight and sound um and have also occasionally come ag- uh, against a bit of hostility for that being quote unquote fashionable. Um so I definitely relate and I'm definitely sort of trying to expand, I think, the breadth of what we look at and the kind of things that we consider important.
1: I think also it's you know, we I think one of the issues with the humanities at the moment is obviously it's it's under attack and that's a, that's an equality and diversity issue and, and something we might talk about later on. But, you know, one of the responses to that is to say the humanities is for everybody. And so we should try and provide the maximum opportunity to get the maximum number of people involved in the humanities. And that often means going beyond texts. You know, it means involving all of the senses in our inquiry and encouraging people to engage all of their senses when they think about the past, whether that's getting them to, to smell things, getting them to touch either original artifacts or 3D replicas in museums. You know, this kind of stuff is really important to kind of widening access, I think, to the humanities. Um, particularly, you know, in a, in, a, in a period when we are far more cognizant of n- neurodiversity um, and the kind of different forms of sensory skills that people may bring to their engagement with the past um, beyond those that have typically been talked about as neurotypical.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I really want to use this podcast kind of to shout from the rooftops that getting rid of the humanities or at least stop slashing funding to the humanities is a huge equality, diversity and inclusion issue. And we need every voice in the humanities, every voice represented to have a breadth of research to topics that affect different people in different ways. So thank you for speaking to that there. Um, so this this project, it, it aims to bring people across Europe closer to their olfactory heritage. Um, and you've spoken about this a little bit, but I just wanted to talk about like, why why do you think it is that we as people need to get in touch with our heritage?
1: I think heritage is important to people because it gives their lives meaning. Uh, it, it, it gives them a sense of place, a sense of community, a sense of belonging. And that is is really important. And I think also it's important because it's about what the past means to people, to, to, to normal people on an everyday level. It's about heritage is about how people value the past and place value Uh, 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 on their understanding of the past or knowledge of the past or the, the past's role in the present. And I think actually that last point about the past's role in the present is really crucial because our kind of olfactory heritage, if you like, is around us every day and informs our daily experience. So heritage is really about the present and future as well as the past. And Our current responses to smells, our current engagement with smells, often have a really long history that goes back even centuries. Um, And a good example of that is the smell of wintergreen, which is a scent that in the US in the 1960s, they did some experiments and similar experiments uh, in 1960s in the UK. And they wanted to know which smells are the nicest and which smells are the most disgusting for people in these two countries. Turns out wintergreen was among one of the nicest smells in the US, and that's because it was a scent that was often included in in candy, uh, in sweets. Um, In the UK, wintergreen was voted overwhelmingly as a very unpleasant smell, and that's because it was a scent that was associated with medicine and with dressings for wounds. And so this one smell had very, very different kind of histories that directly informed people's kind of contemporary consumer behavior and their response to those smells because of the uses that have been put to in the past. And there are so many examples of that, not just for smell, but also for the other senses as well. Um, you know, there's a, there's a great sociologist at, at Goldsmiths who did a fantastic book on, uh, it was an ethnography of the East End through the senses. And one of the things that he looked at was the taste of katsu curry, and today you can go to the city a square mile and you can find a stand that sells halal chicken katsu wraps. So this kind of weird fusion cuisine. But the popularity of that is and the taste for that food is explainable by a series of historical circumstances that include the serving of powdered curries on early piano ferries. Um, the integration of chicken into Japanese cuisine, actually from Europe and then back into Europe again. So all of these shifts have created the tastes that we have today. Um, you know, and we could go on and on and give examples for the other senses as well. But I think that's why heritage and our sensory heritage matters, because it still has a huge impact on our the way we use our senses in the present.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it, it as you're touching on here, the smells that you can archive and the things we smell now do connect to colonial past, which, again, I think connects to that idea that we need a a bigger breadth of opinion and ideas in humanities that in, in the UK, at least um, historically ethnic minorities um, have been kept out of um, studying humanities at university. Um, but clearly, it's it's something that we need more um, uh, more people in if we want to start studying our colonial past too.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and we shouldn't ignore the fact that you know the historical dismissal of the sense of smell has been very closely bound up with colonialism. So, um, you know, when pe- when English colonists went to the Americas in the in the late sixteenth and seventeenth century, in particular, you know, they really relied actually on on indigenous um olfactory knowledge indigenous the indigenous knows to be able to find out about various medicines to be able to find out about commodities that they could then sell back in europe um but then that knowledge has kind of been hidden um by subsequent kind of histories that haven't really been interested in in the sense of smell and at the same time there are kind of hierarchy, that hierarchy of the senses we already talked about that's often dismissed the sense of smell has always been closely mapped on, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries, onto racial and ethnic hierarchies. And that, that's a twofold thing, really. One is the idea that uh, non-white, non-European people are closer to animals and therefore um, have a more animal-like sense of smell that's more sensitive, whereas... You know, the white European is the 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 man, the man, always the man of vision and eyesight and rationality. And this is something that's really clearly expressed by a guy called Lawrence Oakham in the, in 1847 in a, in a book where he explicitly maps out this hierarchy. Um, but there's a kind of second element to that, which is that. And this comes back to the kind of the myth about less civilized people being smellier. You know, it's not just that supposedly non-white, non-European people have a more sensitive sense of smell. They're also always described as smellier. And and that kind of relationship between smell and hierarchy is kind of so consistent, whether that's women smell worse than men, the working classes smell worse than the middle and upper classes, but it also applies to kind of racial hierarchies as well. And, you know, academia um, and the humanities has traditionally always been a very white, male, middle and upper class profession. Um, and for all of those reasons, it's often been a very deodorized one. The classic Mm. example being that when one goes to the archives, uh, when one goes to the British library, you know, the British library kicks people out if they have really, really, if they're really smelly, if they get complaints from other readers.
0: Yeah I I remember you speaking about that in in the talk you gave um, and yeah I was also just thinking there while you were speaking um, that I definitely want to speak to that question of non-institutionalized knowledge and knowledge that hasn't existed in universities um, that do relate to the humanities um, that that is important and and has equal weight so an example that you've been giving is medicine and um, particularly in indigenous communities um, and knowledge that isn't currently um a sort of institution lies within um certain medical areas um in western society. Um that also just reminded me to think of smell that um this weekend, just this weekend, I was at the Surgeons Hall Museum in Edinburgh. And I don't know if you happen to have been there, but they have um a sort of like box that you um you smell in and then you try to guess what's in there and it tells you about the different medical properties um, of of the it might be cinnamon or something um and it just yeah i really enjoyed doing that at the weekend and it totally speaks to your point that the past's role is in the present um and the things that we smell now can tell us a lot about the healing properties of certain things that might now be overlooked
1: yeah absolutely absolutely and i and, and i just wanted to actually to come back to your point about how um the humanities can have a kind of really wide impact across um, lots of disciplines because I think if you're going to study the humanities you know particularly history but but any humanities discipline um, one of the things you have to realize is that what makes the humanities great is that you end up studying absolutely everything you know you can you can have a history of anything. Right. Yes. And I think you know the history of smell kind of proves that. But, you know, you can have history of medicine, you can have history of science, you can have history of maths, should you so wish to go down that road. I wouldn't be one of those people, but, you know, each to their own. <laughs> and I think often students at GCSE or A-level, for example, don't realise that. They don't, you know, they're so acclimatised to a particular view of history that's about politics, that's about kings and queens. There might be a bit of social history in there, but it's often, again, heavily freighted towards kind of chartism and politics or kind of, you know, the social life of the court under the Tudors or something. Um, And, you know, history of smell is one of those things that's trying to challenge that focus. But there are loads of other kind of areas that are now really common in humanities degrees at university that cover the whole breadth of life, <laughs> of society and culture. And, and, I, and I think I really want to impress that because I think it's really important for people to understand that. You know, you're, if you come and do history, you won't just be learning about Henry VIII, not least because I refuse to teach that
0: thank you thank you for speaking to that um I mean I research kissing so I think that really is proof that you can you can research anything um and it's so true I mean if you if you are somebody listening who maybe is a GCSE or an A-level student and you have some ideas about history or a different humanities subject but you haven't seen that represented anywhere it doesn't mean that it's not an important topic it possibly just means that nobody's thought about it yet or Nobody's yet taken it um, to a certain level. And you're right, you really can research anything within the humanities. um, And there will be opportunities to do that. So thank you for speaking to that. Um, So just a question to round off now, and you've touched a bit on this earlier. Um, but I'm fascinated by the fact that COVID-19 has shown us how important smell is. Um, and as I said, I researched touch. So I definitely have found mm-hmm. this as well with um, lack of touch that people had during COVID. It really changed the way I saw my research about kissing. Um, but COVID, it, it obviously initiated a lot of necessary and very admirable research within medical and epidemiological fields. Um But I wanted to just end by asking you a bit about your thoughts on the place of humanities research in all of this. Um, I can't for the life of me find this person I'm desperate to. So if anyone out there saw this tweet, please tell me. Um, But I saw an epidemiologist tweet um, during the first sort of shelter in place um, order in the UK saying, I'm an epidemiologist and I've been essentially preparing for this moment my whole life. But now it's come down to it, all I can think about is the human element. Um, And I'm desperate to interview that person. So if anyone knows who they are, (laughs) please tell me. Um, But yeah, so I just wanted to hear your thoughts about sort of where humanities comes in here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the humanities is kind of crucial to kind of addressing these big crises in a whole series of different ways. I think the first element of that is that all of this is about behavior. It's about the way humans behave and it's the way about the way humans relate to each other and the way that humans relate to each other is is very much bound up with social and cultural um, themes that have a really long history. Right. And 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 we have to understand that history, understand that context if we're going to understand how people are likely to behave when they're told, for example, to to isolate um, or to go into lockdown and to only go to go out to exercise once a day or whatever. So I think the humanities is about humans and medicine deals with bodies. So we have to add the humans to the bodies to really make sense of this stuff. Um, I think the second example where the humanities really matter is is comes back to often the type of data that's being collected. Um, so for example, with anosmia, there was hugely impressive scientific research done on anosmia as a result of COVID massive amounts of material, um, huge quantitative, largely quantitative surveys of people who have suffered from anosmia as a result of COVID um, by various groups of researchers across the globe. However, I was talking to somebody who's involved with a, a, a major anosmia charity the other day, and they said to me, the problem is we didn't really collect enough qualitative information. So we have all of this information about like the kind of very basics about when people started to experience anosmia and how long it lasted for that kind of stuff. We have very, very little information about how it felt for people. How does it feel to experience anosmia? What is that actually like? How would you describe it? How would you represent it to another person? Right. And that's where the humanities come, comes in, because the humanities is, again, is, is about feeling. It's about experience. It's about how people actually respond um, to these kinds of, for example, medical conditions. So I think, in that sense, that the humanities has a has a really important role to play. And thirdly, a, a final kind of point is that I think we used to always be told as historians, or at least you know, I was always told as a BA history student that we shouldn't use the part the, the past, you know, just to inform what we do in the present. Right? The past is not just a repository of lessons for thinking about the present. But actually, I think that's completely and utterly wrong, Um, because in a sense that, you know, past experience is probably the closest we're going to get in terms of lessons about how to react to this kind of stuff. And so I think the past does provide, you know, a huge variety of evidence that we can draw on, both to explain the kind of human reaction to these big challenges like COVID, um, but also to proffer advice on how to deal with the aftermath. And so I think humanities are crucial to that process of, of, of rebuilding after major crises, right? Whether that's kind of gargantuan floods of the sort that we're now seeing um, you know, outside Europe um, or whether that's large disease outbreaks or uh, uh, famines or whatever. Um, these things have happened in the past and we can learn a lot from the past about how to kind of rebuild after them and plan for the future, because there's always options. No matter how um, inevitable certain policies may be described as by governments, um, there are always choices to be made. And the humanities provides evidence for making those choices.
0: That's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on What's the Point today?
1: thanks for having me it's been fun
0: thank you for listening to what's the point if you enjoyed this podcast don't forget to subscribe you can also find us on twitter at wtppod underscore and send us a dm if you want to get in touch we'll see you next time with a brand new episode